You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Tom Brokaw. This program originally aired in 2015. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, NHPR and the Music Hall present Writers on a New England Stage with Tom Brokaw, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. For decades, Tom Brokaw was a mainstay of American television news. As anchor of NBC Nightly News, he was the first American journalist to interview Mikhail Gorbachev, the first to scale the Berlin Wall as it crumbled, and the first to declare, we are at war, when a second plane hit the Twin Towers on 9-11. He caught a lot of flack for that comment, but was largely beloved as a reliable witness to history and for naming the greatest generation, which inspired one of the most popular nonfiction books of the 20th century. As journalist Gwen Eiffel put it, you could be forgiven for imagining that he would outlive us all. Imagine his shock when he realized that the timetable was not up to him. In his memoir, A Lucky Life Interrupted, Tom Brokaw approaches his cancer diagnosis at age 73 as a journalist would, researching the disease and its treatment, creating context, reporting on his progress in pain, and revealing a side of Tom Brokaw we had not yet seen a man confronting his own mortality. Tom Brokaw stepped in front of the sold-out crowd at the Music Hall in Portsmouth with his New Hampshire bona fides at the ready. No, no, thank you very much. That's very generous of you. In fact, it was a little unsettling for me to arrive here in New Hampshire today. My body clock was off because it's been three years since I was here. I generally come every four years. So I'll be back next year, obviously, as well for the first in the nation primary. I really do love your state. Let me just quickly tell you about the first campaign that I had to cover in New Hampshire. There was a mayor of of Los Angeles at the time by the name of Sam Yorty. He was a real rogue. He was more Republican than Democrat, but he decided that he would run in the Democratic primary here in 1972 to derail George McGovern but he was determined not to put in too much time on the campaign trail. So he would campaign in a Winnebago between about 11 in the morning and about one in the afternoon and then have a long nap. At any rate, I was kind of a junior member of the NBC coverage team and unfortunately I drew Sam Yorty as the candidate that I had to traipse around New Hampshire after. And one day I was just completely exhausted when a colleague, a friend of mine who was a competitor from CBS, came running down the hall at the Wayfarer Inn, which was the headquarters of all of us in those days in Manchester, he was waving the Los Angeles Times newspaper, and he said, this will cheer you up. The Los Angeles Times newspaper in those days had a political cartoonist who had won three Pulitzer Prizes. His name was Paul Conrad, and he had a cartoon that consisted of trees in New Hampshire and buckets on a spigot beneath them, and then posters of Sam Yorty on all those trees. And the caption read simply, the sap is running in New Hampshire. (laughs) In fact, it did get me through the next 48 hours. I thought I would take just a few moments of your time and tell you why I'm here. So I'd like to read from the beginning of this book, which will give you the premise of why I wrote it and what we were going through. In the seasons of life, I've had more than my share of summers, a long run of sunny days and adventurous nights filled with lucky stars, 
uninterrupted by great personal calamity, rewarding in ways I could not have imagined in those formative years on the Great Plains. Our eldest daughter, Jennifer, reflecting her training as an emergency room physician, by the way, she's a graduate of the Dartmouth Medical School, was along for the ride. She was along for the ride, but given her training, she worried. Dad, she would say, we've really never had anything go really wrong in our family. I wonder if we can handle it. We were about to find out. In the year 2013, typically, I let my birthday just blow by. I was 73. I was much more focused on a bike trip that I was taking across Argentina and Chile with a group of friends. Then I would be covering the final days of Nelson Mandela, one of the greatest men I had ever encountered or met. But I had a persistent backache. And that was not unusual for me because I'd been a rock climber and a skier. I'm an avid bicyclist and I wade through the fastest rivers and never have any difficulty. But from time to time, my aging bones ache a little bit. This ache just wouldn't go away. I couldn't quite figure it out. So I came back to America and I had an orthopedist look at it. He said, Tom, it's your lifestyle. This is not surprising to me. It still wouldn't go away. So I went out to the Mayo Clinic and an orthopedist there looked at it as well. He had the same conclusion. But my primary care physician, a wonderful man from Buffalo, New York, by the name of Andrew Micah. Dr. Micah said, something's going on here, Tom. Drew a little blood in the morning. I'm on the board of the Mayo Clinic, so I had a lot of other things to worry about. I went off and began to get my house in order for the board meeting the next day and some business that we had to do that night as well. And Andrew Micah said to me, why don't you come over to my office this afternoon after lunch? I'm going to have one of my colleagues there, and there's some things that we ought to go over. Well, I really thought I probably had a parasite, which I pick up from time to time when I'm traveling in the third world. So I wasn't thinking much about it. I went over, and Dr. Micah did have a kind of startled expression on his face when I looked back on it. And this very brusque Chicagoan came in, who was the head of internal medicine at the Mayo Clinic and a renowned hematologist. He sat down in front of a computer screen, and he began reading off numbers that sounded to me like an SAT test. I didn't quite understand what he was talking about. And then this is what happened. As he finished his play-by-play, -play, he turned to me, uttered a phrase for which I was completely unprepared. You have a malignancy, he said. Making no attempt to prepare me for what was coming, he plunged ahead, saying it appeared that I had multiple myeloma, a cancer of the plasma cells in the bone marrow, adding, you know others who have died from this. Frank Reynolds, the ABC anchorman. So that's what he died of, I thought. And Geraldine Ferraro, the first woman to run for vice president of the United States. Now, she lived with it for 12 years when the life expectancy was much shorter. It is treatable, but it's not curable. We're making progress. 50% of the progress that has been made has been made in the last five years. I want to review your record overnight to make sure that we've got this right. Life expectancy. Dr. Kurtz, I asked. He said, well, statistically five years, but we think you can beat that. Frankly, I appreciated that unconditional straight-ahead style. Now, he may have been absent today in his medical school class when they had a seminar on bedside manners. <laughs> but that was not so much an issue for me as it may have been for others. I was a journalist. 
I was looking for facts, not a cheerful obfuscation. I think as well, all of us have wondered what would happen when we'd hear that kind of diagnosis. Well, I quickly learned. I stayed calm, and my initial thought was, my family's gonna be okay. So I walked out of this office calm as I could possibly be, as a journalist looking in on Tom Brokaw, the person, wondering, shouldn't you be more angry? Shouldn't you be more terrified? Shouldn't you be more puzzled? But in fact, I felt I was in the hands of the best hospital in the world, the Mayo Clinic. My family was going to be okay, and whatever it took, I was confident that I could get the resources to deal with it. So I got on a charter plane and I went back to Montana and didn't arrive until midnight of the second day. I had not yet told Meredith because I didn't want her to know over the telephone. And we drove through the darkness of the wilderness areas of mountains in Montana back to our little ranch house and I poured a stiff drink and sat at the bedside and said, there's something I haven't told you. I've got a cancer and it's called multiple myeloma. It's going to change our lives. Meredith gave me what I always called her steely hard stare, as if she couldn't quite absorb it. And I went on to say to her, we'll get this to, through this together as we have everything else, but I have no idea how it's going to end. We hugged, and with that long life of emotional connection and calibration, 53 years of marriage, we fell asleep in each other's arms. I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Tom Brokaw, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. The next day, I did one of the dumbest things I've ever done. Here I'd just been diagnosed with cancer. I had made arrangements to go fishing with some friends 155 miles away in Montana. I jumped in the car with a bag of ice on my back and drove to the fishing spot. By the second day, I was curled up in a friend's cabin in a pretzel of pain. I could barely breathe. We made our way back to the ranch. I still didn't tell my friends what I was going through. And everything that the Mayo Clinic would throw at us in terms of pain pills did no good whatsoever. And I had to be medevaced out of Montana. We have great cowboy EMTs in Montana. <laughs> they came out, one of them is an ex-Army Ranger. They came out up into our bedroom, which has a very narrow staircase, not unlike the older homes in, in New Hampshire. And they shot me full of Demerol, loaded me into one of those evacuation chairs, and then we had a 60-mile drive over mostly gravel roads to Bozeman and the airplane. I was then transferred to New York, and I was handed off to a brilliant young oncologist at Sloan Kettering. And a group of senior physicians came in while I was there and what happens with doctors is that they want to be reassuring. They said to a man, nine months from now, Tom, you're going to be back out doing your old thing. Well, that was kind of uplifting for me. And it was dead wrong, it turns out. I went through a really difficult time. I had four compression fractures in my spine that a doctor had missed at the Sloan Kettering. And they were repaired with something called kypoplasty. They put a needle into your spine and fill those fractures with cement. And that was tough enough. But when I came out, Meredith looked at me, patted me, and said, 
you remember when you used to be six feet and 5'11"? I said, yeah. She said, you're now 5'9". You've lost two inches in height. That was tough on my vanity. But then we have this kind of wicked sense of humor in the Brokaw family. My daughters came back to New York, stood eyeball to eyeball with me and said, Dad, you're still the big man in the family. But you're a lot shorter than you used to be. That began a process that went on all through the winter months of 2013 and 2014. I was in and out of the hospital every week. And then I had a terrible fall at our house in upstate New York and opened up an eight-inch gash over my left eye that went all the way to the skull. So I began to think, where's that lucky star everybody has been talking about? Maybe it does have a dimmer switch. But what gave me courage to go on is that our youngest daughter had given birth to a fantastic first grandson in the family. I've been raised by a harem of women. <laughs> Meredith, three daughters, and those two of those three daughters each had two girls, and suddenly we got a boy. And he came for Christmas. And our youngest daughter, Sarah, said, when I realized how sick you were, Dad, I was at first terrified and then angry because he'll need you to teach him how to throw a baseball and how to fly fish in not too many years. And that was one more motivation for me. Well, I learned a lot about life during that uncertain time of going to the hospital two or three times a week, being confined in my bedroom more than I would have liked. I learned to be more reflective. I learned as well the important lessons that most cancer patients, I believe, should be aware of, and that's a big part of the reason that I wrote the book. I wanted it to be a kind of guidebook for other cancer patients and for the medical community as well, because I think there are some things that we can all learn. First of all, it's helpful if the physicians who diagnose you tell you what you're going to go through. Don't sugarcoat it. Since then, I have also said to other cancer victims, Get a doctor who is not involved directly in your case and make him or her your consigliere, your ombudsman. My daughter Jennifer was that in spades. Now we have emerged into the sunshine because my cancer is in remission. And we hope that we can keep it there. And what I have learned so much is not just the people-to-people -people aspect of being a cancer patient, but also the medical miracles that are being performed every day. So here I am at this stage in my life, now 75, having celebrated two birthdays since I was diagnosed. And this is what I write at the end. Has cancer changed me? Am I a better person? That's for others to judge. All I know is that in family, access to excellent care, the resources to pay for it, the chance to remain a journalist, and with a cohort of interesting friends, I remain a lucky guy. So far, the early reassurance of my condition is holding up. I will die someday, but it's not likely to be the result of multiple myeloma. I do think about mortality in ways I did not before the diagnosis. 
it no longer seems a faint, distant reality, in part because I have experienced the ruthless nature of cancer. Simultaneously, at age 75, I have moved into that neighborhood of life in which there are few long-term leases. It is not enough to rage, rage against the dying of the light. It is also a time to quietly savor the advantages of a lucky life and to use them to fill every waking moment with emotional and intellectual pursuits worthy of the precious time that we have life. Bring it on. Thank you all very much. Thank you. That's longtime anchor and best-selling author Tom Brokaw reading from his memoir, A Lucky Life Interrupted, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. In a moment, I'll sit down with Tom Brokaw and ask him about his Midwestern stoicism and how that served him as an award-winning journalist and where it failed him as a cancer patient. We'll also talk about trying to maintain his privacy during treatment as a public figure. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more Writers on a New England Stage with Tom Brokaw, a special edition of Word of Mouth from NHPR. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with Tom Brokaw, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall. Tom Brokaw joined us to talk about A Lucky Life Interrupted, a memoir of his diagnosis and treatment for multiple myeloma, a rare and untreatable form of cancer. I sat down with Tom Brokaw to talk about his good fortune as a pillar of American broadcast news and in friendship and in family, and how he responded when it looked like that luck had run out. We also included several questions submitted by the audience. Good evening, everybody. How about that? Complete remission for Tom Broca. Fantastic news. The dimmer switch has not completely dimmed on your lucky life. Well, it, you know, but I, I must say as well, there are no guarantees with cancer. I, I, I had a friend I was going through cancer, this cancer with, the wife of a colleague, and we were tracking each other one after another. I was having breakfast with her husband from time to time. Midway through, I'm sorry, but I'm terribly sorry. She had a stroke and didn't make it. So there are no assurances. And one of the things that cancer treats you is just that. You take life every day, and you have your goals, and you have as well the ability to kind of shift away from things that no longer count. One of my friends said to me midway through, a very close friend, we were walking back from dinner, and he said, how's your tolerance for jerks? Although he used a more colorful term than jerks. <laughs> and I said, zip at this point. I'm at a point in my life where I only deal with the people that I care about. Your fellow New Hampshire resident and a very, very close friend of mine is Ken Burns, who has done a documentary called Cancer the Emperor, Cancer, the Emperor of All Maladies. And it's about the beginning of cancer during the Greek age is when they discover what was going on. And one of the oncologists in there says, cancer doesn't care if you're a mother or a father or if you have children, it only cares about waging a war on your body. So you have to be on guard. But never in the book do you seem to shake your fist at the sky and say, why me? 
No, I didn't. You know, I, I, I actually I was again the journalist on the outside looking in the first 24 hours. I thought, why am I not saying why me? Mm. You know, I've thought I've had such a good life, and this is an accident really of the composition of my body. And then I get a wonderful note from my friend Sam Donaldson, and he said, Oh, and, him. And Sam, when Sam writes, it's like you can hear him talking. And he said, Thomas, I know what you're thinking. Why me? The better question at our age is, why not me? And that's what we have to remember. And it was a wonderfully generous note that put everything in perspective. He had survived a very severe case of melanoma and had gone through that knot hole that you do as a cancer patient. Well, it, let's go back to that time when you first found out you were at the Mayo Clinic board meeting. It was two days before you saw your wife. And I just heard you say, so I thought I'd sit down and work on my JFK documentary script. I mean, that is like a black belt in compartmentalization, I believe. Where, where did you get that? Did you cultivate that as a journalist? Well, or did I, it just I, come I think with I your... did. I, I, I've grown up with it. I mean, it's, uh, you know, when, when I jump on an airplane and fly to Afghanistan or to Iraq or the Berlin Wall or whatever thing, I've got lots of kinds of uh, missions that I have to do. I have to cover the story. I have to worry about transportation, where I'm going to spend the night when my colleagues are gonna catch up with me or not. So I am good at compartmentalizing and I am um, kind of a, a whirling dervish when it comes to work. So I didn't wanna go home and just curl up in a fetal position in the hotel. So I would work for half an hour and then I would go to another one of my instruments and I would Google multiple myeloma. And with every pass, I would find out a little bit more. And I didn't wanna know way too much the first night because I didn't know what I was reading, in fact. And I thought, what if there's something in there that will terrify me? I better just deal with my doctors. I'm really more of a private person than most people think in terms of what's going on in my life. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always poking and, and discussing public lives, but I don't want people kind of messing around in my life. You're not an oversharer, I can tell from this book. I mean, we yeah. learn an awful lot about you in this book, but you seem to have this inability to overshare. Well, I... One of the things I do, I, I have friends who um, have encouraged me over the years to write the stories that I tell. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, they're better in the telling than they would be in the writing. And I, my stories are never about me. They're always about somebody else. Or whether they're about me, I'm mocking myself. It, what makes my wife crazy is that I have a constantly moving film in my life. I can remember what someone said to me in the second grade. True story. And I, what a teacher said to me or what a friend said to me because... Maybe vanity. I thought if I'm involved, it must be important. <laughs> and you've still been married 53 years now. That's yeah, right. And she's with that much of a memory. And she's the opposite. I mean, she's the cool, compartmentalized. You know, she's got master points and bridge. She's a, a whirling dervish when it comes to uh, anything that requires great organization. I'm the bombastic type, and uh, you know, it's a great fit. Well, it seems to be working pretty well. But you know, in the book you write about, you're suddenly in the mortality zone. You're suddenly aware of your own mortality, which really struck me because you have been at the aftermath of earthquakes and disasters and interviewed dictators. And, and so much of your reporting has been about wars, not just political wars, but actual wars and actual danger zones. It seems that you've existed in a mortality zone for a long time. But separate. it's interesting that you don't see yourself in that world. Well, I think the reason I was successful uh, covering calamities and wars and other things is that I didn't think it was going to happen to me. I think if you go in there with a, uh, with a big fear factor, one of my friends wrote to me today, who is a 
our very best producers. We've been all over the world and in the worst possible places. And he wrote something about me, and then he just did a dash. He said, you always have been a little bit nutty, Tom, and we have to deal with that. I remember uh, I was in, um, in the Hindu Kush in Pakistan a couple of years ago during the big earthquake, and there was a big American military installation there, and they assigned a Navy a PAO officer to me, and uh, he was a lieutenant commander, and he said, you guys are nuts. I'm not going where you're going. He went back, got in the car, and went back to headquarters. So, uh... <laughs> Well, here's somebody who's asking about your career. Uh, growing up in L.A., you were a familiar sight on KNBC. I left L.A. and was surprised to see you years later on the national news. What intrigued you the most, the events of 1968 or Watergate? Well, uh, 1968 was one of those great years that will always be in bold print at the front of uh, chapters in history books because the counterculture really kicked in at that time. And it's when Lyndon Johnson stepped down, Bobby Kennedy and Dr. King were killed, we had the riots in Chicago. Uh, that was a convulsive time and it led to the election of Richard Nixon. But Richard Nixon was always his own worst enemy and it became the greatest political scandal in American history in which he was forced to resign. So I couldn't say one or the other was more cataclysmic or more important. They were kind of of a piece. And I was, again, lucky to be in the middle of both of them as a journalist. Well, 1968 was a huge year, but you also point out 1989 as a cataclysmic year. And this was the year that you were the only network newscaster who was at the Berlin Wall for the fall. I'd just love to hear you tell that story because it all began with a tip. From, from a friend, didn't it? Well, it, it, it did, and we didn't think the wall was going to come down. We thought a lot was happening in the East and that there was not much going on here, so let's go there. And my motto as a journalist has always been, it's never a mistake to go. You know, just get on the airplane and go. Something will happen. And um, <laughs> so I didn't think I would be standing as the only correspondent in the world with satellite capacity the night the Berlin Wall came down. But it came down the second day that we were there, it happened almost by accident. In fact, the East German official who made the announcement, turns out it was a mistake the way that he made that announcement. I'm now rushing over to the wall. We've got satellite capacity, and I'm thinking, as a journalist will, my God, there is no bigger story in the world. This is the end of the Cold War. This is the symbolic end of the Cold War. And I'm looking around. Dan and Peter, I know, are back in New York. The BBC doesn't have anybody there. Not even German television had live capacity. We were the only ones. And I had a, I'm a big outdoorsman, so I had a kind of a ratty coat, and I don't want to offend regional sensibilities, it was a ratty L.L. Bean coat. Uh. <laughs> I'd had it for a long time, and it really looked pretty awful. And uh, I was up there getting ready, and I looked down on the monitor, and I saw myself, in, and I thought, this videotape is going to be around forever. And I looked off to my right, and one of my colleagues, uh, Mike Betcher, had just come from London where he bought himself a beautiful blue cashmere top coat. And I said, Betcher, give me your coat right now. <laughs> and uh, he did, and he, I gave him my coat. So I look splendid at the Berlin Wall, I'm here to tell you. Well, you've been there for so many cataclysmic events. You were the first to interview Gorbachev. You were the first to do a network human rights abuse report on what was going on in Tibet and interview the Dalai Lama. So many firsts. You were there for 9-11. And yet you say that some of your most memorable interviews are like those with the Pierce family of Vermont, whose son was dealing with a head injury. I mean, how, really, how can this be? Well, the reason I think those are the most uh, important interviews I've ever done. The Pierces are a classic example of that. 
the Pierces, you, many of you in this area especially know about them. They, they're, first of all, the father's one of the great glass artisans in the world, and then they have these wonderful boys, and one of them was a world-class snowboarder, and he was, and frankly, he was, had a really good shot at a, at a gold medal. He had a traumatic head injury when he took a terrible spill uh, before the Olympics in Vancouver. We didn't know whether he was going to survive or not. And then halfway through the Olympics, uh, we got a call from the family. We'd been staying in touch with them, NBC had the Olympics, and they said, for the first time, we're encouraged. And if you want to come down and see Kevin, uh, now would be the time to do it. So I jumped on an airplane and flew to, uh, to, to Denver, where he was in this great rehab facility. And I was overwhelmed by the quality of the family pulling this young man across the line and making him well again. His brothers were so emotional saying, you don't know what it's like to go in and see your brother and not know whether he's going to make it or not. And Kevin later said, I grew to hate my brothers because they just pushed me so hard on rehab. And the youngest son is a Down syndrome child. And he was going up and down the hallways of the rehab center and grabbing every doctor and saying, that's my brother. You have to save my brother. And then uh, Kevin and Pia Pierce, uh, you know, father and mother, they were so appropriate in their emotions, saying we didn't know how this was going to turn out. I called back to uh, Vancouver to Dick Ebersole, who was our executive producer of Olympic coverage. And when the Olympics are on, that's what people want to see. So, you, you know, it's hard to break away from them. And I said, prime time tomorrow night, Dick. We've got to do this story. It's about family and values. And then it's also about athletes, but family and values first. And everybody watching will be terribly moved by this. And he said, okay, I'll take your word for it. It went back, we got the uh, broadcast in order, and I was on with Bob Costas. And he said, I think I should see it. And I said, I want you to see it first. I want you to react to it. And we played the, the broadcast. And Bob was, for maybe the first time in his life, speechless for about two minutes. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was that moving. And uh, that's the kind of thing that keeps me going, quite honestly. I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to a special edition of Word of Mouth. Today, it's Writers on a New England Stage with Tom Brokaw, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. And you made those calls. That was your job as managing editor and anchorman at NBC. Well, in that case, I, you know, I, I have this odd dotted line of the sports department. They like me to do the serious essays. You know, I've done essays on Canada. I did uh, in Sydney, Australia. We we found the guy in the Fiji Islands who rescued John F. Kennedy on PT-109. So I do, in this last Olympics, I couldn't go to Sochi. We made it look like I was there, but we did the cosmonauts and the astronauts who worked together on the Soviet and U.S. space programs. So Dick and I are close, and he, trust me, if I called and said, look, it's your call, but this, we really should put this on in prime time. You know, for him, I mean, his whole mission is to do the Olympics. But he said, okay, I get it. Let's do it. And uh, it really worked very well. Isn't that when it was announced that you had cancer officially on NBC that, that during Sochi coverage? Well, what happened was when I, I kept it secret from almost everyone, although my closest friends, a couple of them figured it out. And then I, I began to tell some of them because I got tired of lying, quite honestly. Why, why did you keep it secret? I didn't want to be on the internet. Tom Brokaw, a cancer victim. I didn't want to be on television with everyone looking at me and saying, is he going to die? You know, is there something wrong with him? I wanted to have a normal life. I wanted to be able to go up and down the streets of New York in my own way and not have people pointing at me and saying, that guy's got cancer. Now, especially here in the Northeast, uh, I'll tell you a story that helped keep me going at one point. 
And in the fall of 13, we had a terrible winter in New York. It was icy and sleety and snowy, and I was in tough, tough shape. I'd force myself out of the bed in the morning, and I, I didn't want to show up on the streets with a cane or a walker. So I would stumble down the street on 79th Street to coffee shop to get a bagel. And there was this enormous poster on 79th Street at a bus stop of Tom Brady. And he was advertising Ugg boots. <laughs> and he was every inch Tom Brady, staring down 79th Street with that pitch perfect face of his and that great body and everything. And I'd walk up to it and look at it, and I would say something I can't repeat in public. <laughs> And it would kind of give me a lift. <laughs> and I'd keep on going. And uh, I then later met him uh, a year later at the Preakness. We were both guests of Under Armour. Kevin Plank, who owns Under Armour, said, I want you to meet Tom Brady. I said, I want to meet him. I have a story to tell him. <laughs> so <laughs> he came over, and I, he, I introduced myself. He said, no, I've watched you for a long time. And I said, well, I've had cancer. He said, oh, my God, I had no I said, no, no, you helped me. And he had this kind of posse of guys around him. So I told him the story. And... Uh, he just roared with laughter. <laughs> now, I'm a Giants fan, but he kind of won me over, and I made a bet on him in the Super Bowl, by God, and they pulled it off. <laughs> so what made you decide to go public then? Well, somebody got it first. Uh, one of the news sites did. Uh, oh, you didn't give NBC the exclusive? Yeah, they went to NBC and said, we hear that Tom Brokaw has got multiple myeloma. I think it came out a leak out of the hospital, frankly. And we had been expecting it. By then, it was, it, we were well into it. It was like seven or eight months. And um, NBC put out a wonderful statement about, you know, uh, we're very confident Tom is going to recover. He's getting the best care. He continues to work for us, and he's very important to us. And I said, yes, in fact, I have multiple myeloma. We're concentrating on the treatment, and I want to continue to do that in privacy, please, if you'll allow it. And I must say that I was treated extremely well. There were a couple of on CNN and one or two other places, they did quick descriptions. What is multiple myeloma and what can we expect? And then New York being New York. Uh, we've lived there for longer than we've ever lived anywhere else. If I'd go out after that, cops would stop me on the street and say, you're going to be okay? And I said, I'm going to be okay. Or hard hat construction workers and other people. So it, it, it's that Manhattan as family quality that, that they have about it. And there was a little coffee shop around the corner. I get very dehydrated uh, with all the drugs I was taking. I'd go out and walk my dog at night, and uh, about 8.50, they closed at 9. I'd walk by and say, and I'd come back after, around the block with my dog, and they'd have a strawberry shake for me ready so I could take it back to the house. So it, I, I was really treated very well. And you also got excellent medical care. It, at the beginning, you were on a pill, Revlimid, I think it's called, that was $500 a day. And there were several times... Actually, in the, it was $1,000. It was $500 a, a pill. And twice a day. $1,000 a day. Well. Now, people who are poor, uh, who are fall below certain lines and are Medicare eligible, can get that pill. But if somebody is in their 40s, and they're not on Medicare, and they're in a different place in life, it's very, very difficult. I had excellent coverage from my days, 50 years with NBC, began as RCA, then was GE, and then Comcast. So I have a terrific health care plan. That's not available to everybody. Well, you do. You wonder several times throughout the book, you know, what if I were a farmer in Kansas? What if I were a single working mother, not a high-profile patient right. with a great plan, with the resources to cover it? 
Um, and also with access to star oncologists. I mean, Jerome Groupman will take your call and join your medical team. So, so are you in remission because you are Tom Brokaw? I'm in remission because I have the right chromosomes and the right DNA. Um, I think that probably you know, a lot of these hospitals do take in cases. I mean, they say, we'll work this out in some fashion. In my case, uh, we didn't know going in uh, about what my internal construct was. And it turned out to be right. So they kept throwing drugs at me. And Revlimid was the beginning one. It's an offshoot of uh, thalidomide, by the way, which was a notorious drug that was banned in the early 50s because it caused miscarriages in women. But a pharmacologist, I think at Dana-Farber, is the one who figured out that it was a very good antidote to blood conditions. So I started with Revlimid, and then they added Valcade to it, which also came out of thalidomide. And as Dr. Anderson at, uh, at Dana-Farber said, we're going to go to war, Tom. We're going you know, to pump it up because you can handle it. I, I didn't have to do stem cell. They did extract my stem cells from me, but I didn't have to uh, go through all of that. And let me just say parenthetically, we have eight doctors in our family, by the way. My wife's whole side of the family are, are physicians, and I've grown up in the medical community. I've done three documentaries on it. But until you become a patient and then get in, you know, injected into the culture itself, you have no keen appreciation of how uh, important the people at the bottom are, the nurses, the, the technicians, the orderlies, the people who come in and make sure that you're comfortable. And I made a lot of friends during all of this. Uh, we went, I went back and talked to some of them, and they said, we didn't know what to expect. You know, here you're Tom Brokaw, the anchorman, and you're always asking, where do we go to medical school? And one of them was from Florida State. And I said, what about that quarterback down there? You know, what are you going to do about him? And so I connected with them because I so admire what they were doing. I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Tom Brokaw, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Well, besides recommending that people get an ombudsman or get a Jennifer, in your case, right. for your daughter... You also encourage people to become educated and be upfront about their pain and don't be stoic. How about you? Do you take your own advice on that? Are you still being well, a stoic? I was too stoic in terms of describing my pain. And uh, um, I have a high threshold for pain. I'm not, not bragging. It's just that comes with my physiology. And when I had the back issue, and the invasive radiologist said, on a scale of uh, 1 to 10, where are you? And I'd say about 2 or 3. And my daughter would be behind me rolling her eyes and my wife would be saying no no it's much worse than that and he said you had a severe spinal fracture and you're telling me you're a three and he said we need you to complain and the and the uh, <laughs> we, and the oncologist said complain 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 that's how we find out and part of the role of a doctor by the way who you get to be your ombudsman is that they can tell the physician physician to physician what you're not able to tell them in a way jennifer would say look Dad was in a lot of pain last night, and we don't know where it came from. Or there's something called night sweats that comes with cancer. She said, these things come and go. How can we deal with that? And so she was an, an interpreter for the physician. What I've suggested to healthcare facilities is that try to get some ombudsman in a department. You know, if, if families come in and they don't have any idea going through, you say, here's the card of a guy. He's a retired doctor in this area, and he probably can help you translate some of this. Or have what I call the kind of scorecard. Here's what you can expect. But most clinicians make the diagnosis and then do a U-turn and go back and try to figure out how to deal with it. They don't take time to talk about what you're going to go through. And I, I do think that healthcare has to be more holistic than it is. That it has to talk about, look, 
this is going to be tough. And bring the family in. And uh, you're going to all have to sit down and decide what your roles are. So um, that's what I hope the book will help do as well. Well, reading this book, I can't help but think, I mean, I was a family. We watched NBC Nightly News. Um, for us, you know, we gathered around. You, you brought, you know, credibility to stories. You made them real for us. You were, as far as I was concerned, you were the voice of God, you know, making things you, you real. You check with my family if you believe I was the voice of God. <laughs> but now, I mean, is that what this book is about? If, if Tom Brokaw can get cancer, then you can get cancer. Anybody can get cancer. And everybody will at some point in the family. Um, 1,600 people die today of cancer in America. Uh, 1,600,000 people are diagnosed with cancer every year. And what has been astonishing to me is that since I wrote that book and we did the documentary, I'm hearing from families and cancer patients with all kinds of cancer. Uh, there's a very senior admiral in the Defense Department who has multiple myeloma, and he got in touch with me. A football coach with the Dallas Cowboys got in touch with me. and then. Other family members who have multiple myeloma patients in their family talk about they have a different regimen than I'm going through, and they're sharing that with me. And they're saying, what do you think? I said, well, look, I'm not in a position to do that, but if it's working, stay where you are. And then I'm hearing as well from clinicians. Uh, they're wanting to know how I reacted to the addition of Velcade, for example, when they put that on with Revlimid. Because it really is, it, it, it really is a consulting game. It really is a team sport dealing with cancer, and everybody has to share what they know. I describe Dr. Anderson as my coach and offensive coordinator, and Heather Landau, who is this brilliant young oncologist at Sloan, as my quarterback. She's moving the plays down the field, making decisions on her own, conferring with Dr. Anderson, and between them, uh, they decide what's best. One of the uh, doctors, in fact, the man who, uh, who diagnosed me, thought that I should have stem cell. He still believes that stem cell is the best insurance. But Dr. Anderson and Heather said, great progress on drugs alone. We'll beat it with drugs alone. And they were right. Number of questions here, by the way, about uh, the Brian Williams situation and what it will have, what impact that will have on nightly news reporters. I'm told that you have said all you would like to say on that topic. What I say about the Brian case, and I, I ask your forbearance in this, it's a, this is a serious issue, and it's serious for Brian and his family and for NBC News. We have a process in place, and it's, and it's, uh, it's moving forward, and there will be a resolution, exactly one I can't say. But I don't want uh, to prejudge anything. Uh, what, I, what has been a little bit maddening is that with all those media sites out there, everybody thinks that they know, and things have been attributed to me that were just completely wrong about my relationship with Brian. I, when he first took the job, I was the guy who kind of got him in that place. We had a cordial relationship. Now, he had a different view of some journalism than I did. That's not unusual, you know, and I, and I stayed back from that. Uh, and he was extremely good on the air. But there are issues that have to be dealt with, and the process is in place to deal with those. How about you? Would you like to be the network news anchor in the age of Twitter? I'm, I'm thinking of calling uh, the 2000 election for Al Gore early in the evening, for example, when well, you... Well, you say with me, I called it for both of them at one time or another that <laughs> night. I you, mean, were, <laughs> you were an equal opportunity anchor we didn't know. that I night. Mean, but I mean, now, that would, would that be forgiven? Uh, well, I think it was even forgiven that night because the, the chaos was in the system, mm -hmm. not with those of us. We weren't making this up. We were doing the best that we could. When we said that it was a Gore... Then Carl Rove came out on the, on the grounds of the uh, governor's mansion in Texas 
And I said to Tim, if Roth thinks that Gore hasn't got it, you know, he's probably got reason for believing that. We better be careful about this. And then, and then when it looked like Gore had lost, they were on the way to the memorial in Nashville, and then it came back toward him, and Bill Daly, who was his campaign manager, called me from the car and said, what the hell is going on? And I said, you tell me. I don't know at this point. And finally, at about 3 in the morning, I said, we not only have egg on our face, we have omelets all over our suits <laughs> at this point. I, I've never been through anything like that before. Um, please, what source do you rely on for accurate news? I, you know, I, I'm... Uh, I'm really quite universal. I get up in the morning, I read the major newspapers. I read the, uh, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New York Times. I go online to read the Financial Times in London, edited by a friend of mine. That's also, by the way, a perfect demonstration of how lucky we are to have all of these new systems. I keystroke, and there is the Financial Times, which gives me the best overnight foreign reporting. And then the Council of Foreign Relations has a wonderful site that they update overnight for all the important foreign developments. And then I breeze through the political sites, you know, Red State, Salon, they're all the way from the far left to the far right. I want to kind of know what they're saying. I read Politico faithfully. It's a very, very good political cheat sheet, as it were. They've got very smart reporters who are doing the overnight thing about what did Hillary say today and is that going to hold up? How did Jeb get in so much trouble, can he get out of it, what's going on in New Hampshire. So I get right in on that, and then I, I just kind of do it all day long. And I have a network of friends out there that I'm in touch with, Tom Friedman from the New York Times, you know, we have exchanges back and forth, and, and other, Chuck Todd and I talk a lot, he's our moderator of Meet the Press and our political director in Washington, and then other other folks as well. We're not a very large group, you know, the old political journalists, and we like to stay in touch with each other. Um, I love this question. Why aren't you on the Letterman show? Well, you know, I don't know what's going to happen uh, tonight. Um, David and I have been very close for a long time, and I, he's kept us very tight. I was on his first show when he went to CBS, and we've been talking back and forth about a couple of things. I did send him an email today saying, um, uh, David, uh, tonight, all the eyes of America will be on you, the departure of an icon. I've been so proud to be your friend, but if you screw this up, I'll never talk to you again. <laughs> well, Tom Brokaw, perhaps it's odd for me to be speaking to an icon of journalism, breaking a sort of journalistic rule and saying... I'm so grateful for what you've done for my father and so many people who were members of the greatest generation who I think you gave permission to speak about their experience and dignity to qualify their experience. And I'm, I'm just extremely grateful that you did that for him and for so many others. I know there's been a lot of criticism for it, but... And, you know, you become a, a, a sort of spokesman for the greatest generation in many ways, a figurehead. Is this book going to make you a spokesman for the cancer story? Um, well, I know I don't want to. I, I don't want And in fact, I said to somebody yesterday, I'm not equipped to be a, a spokesman for cancer. I'm, I can't help from a cancer patient point of view. But let me just back up for a moment on two points. I'm, I'm now at that place when um, what happens is if you get labeled with something, it gets picked up and repeated. So I'm now always described as the legendary Tom Brokaw or the iconic Tom Brokaw, 
I remember not so long ago when I was described as a baby-faced Tom Brokaw. <laughs> so, you know, I don't take all that way too seriously. The greatest generation, what I did was open the door. I'm not their spokesman. They speak so eloquently for themselves. And what I learned very early on was to stand back and let them speak. Uh, I was at the 70th anniversary of D-Day with a man by the name of Frank DeVita, who was a 17-year-old Coast Guardsman who lowered a ramp on the first wave at D-Day. And he'd been thrown into the job, and the ramps were steel, and they were up like this, and they landed in a particularly hot spot, and a German machine gunner zeroed in on him. And he said it was like a typewriter on the ramp, and everybody was crouched down, and the coxswain who was running the, uh, the, uh, the boat said, DeVita, drop the ramp, and he wouldn't do it. He pretended like he didn't hear it because he knew that they would be going face-to-face -face with a German machine gunner. And so he didn't drop it, and the guy yelled at him again. He didn't do it, and finally the guy used a lot of expletives and drew his pistol. And Frank said, I had no choice but to drop that ramp, and he said, only three guys got ashore. The rest were all killed or wounded. And then he said, there's a myth. When men are dying on the beach, they're not calling out to the Lord or their God. They're calling out to their mothers. I couldn't improve on that in 100 years as a journalist. That's the most eloquent thing you can possibly imagine from one man who landed on D-Day. And that gives you a sense of the chaos and the choices that had to be made that day. And what I was was just the transmission belt for that. A warm thank you for Mr. Tom Brokaw. Thank you. Tom Brokaw, author of an enormously popular series of books on the greatest generation, and more recently, A Lucky Life Interrupted, his memoir of surviving cancer. He's now in remission. Our conversation was recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for Writers on a New England Stage, a co-production of New Hampshire Public Radio and the Music Hall in Portsmouth in collaboration with River Run Books. The executive producer and live stage presentation director is Patricia Lynch. NHPR president is Betsy Gardella. Producer and communication director is Margaret Talcott. The live sound and recording and mixing engineer is Noah LaFave. Bob Lord and Dreadnought provide live music. Broadcast producer for NHPR is Maureen McMurray. Digital producer is Sarah Plord. Music hall production manager is Jana Morris. Our broadcast sponsor is Harvest Capital. Photos from the event are posted online at Clear Eye Photo. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this has been a special broadcast of Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio.